This is an ABC podcast. Crystal ball, check. Tarot cards, check. Incense, check. Okay, I think we're ready. I'm Lisa Leong and today on This Working Life, we're going to peer into our crystal ball to see if we can get a heads up on what 2021 holds for our workplaces. And if 2020 is anything to go by, we're going to need it. First to lay their cards on the table is demographer Bernard Salt. And ooh, doesn't he look the part? Love the headscarf, though he may have gone a little heavy on the eyeliner. Anyway, his predictions for 2021 revolve around the biggest change to work last year. Yep, working from home. Well, it's very interesting because I have been tracking the proportion of the Australian workforce working from home for 25 years. At the 1996 census, 5% of Australians worked from home and one of those five percentage points were farmers who had to work from home. And despite the fact that we've had dial up to first, second, third, fourth, fifth G, whatever we're up to at the moment, the the proportion of the population or workforce working from home at the 2016 census did not change from 1996. So, And the reason was there was a cultural blockage that if you're working from home over the last 20 years, people thought, oh, well, you're having a day at the beach or you're watching Days of Our Lives or whatever. The important shift with the coming of the coronavirus is that it's shown workplaces and workers that you can be productive working from home. Not everyone, but a significant number. I think at the peak of the lockdown, up to 45, even 50% of the workforce was working from home. And the big question is, does that revert back to 5% or does it, as I think it will, revert back to maybe 10% or even 15%? And that difference between the old 5% and maybe the new 10%, that's another five percentage points, that equates to 600,000 workers who are no longer commuting, if I'm right, and it could even be higher. That is a profound shift in the way in which we navigate our cities. So you've alluded to the fact that this shift, which doesn't sound like a big number until you start talking about 600,000, then you're starting to talk about maybe not commuting, changes to our cities. So what do you think the knock-on effects might be? Well, the knock-on effect is that there is going to be a an activation of suburbia, more people working from home. It injects life and energy into the suburbs. It's a bit like putting a defibrillator across the fat belly of middle suburbia, although I don't think you put a defibrillator on the belly, I think you put it on the chest. So so people are working from home, they're, they're shopping from home, they're being entertained via Netflix at home, they're going to the local park, local cafe, or at least a greater number than was previously the case. So it activates suburbia and it introduces that concept of the 20-minute city that planners have been banging on about for the last 20 years. But it also means that the CBD is subdued. I I think that the ASX top 200, you know, the really big businesses in Australia are still going to have like the CEO and the, you know, the the head honchos or whatever, still going to be in Collins Street or in, you know, down on the quay in Sydney or in Eagle Street in Brisbane or wherever it is. But all the hangers on, all the consultants and contractors that hang around the CBD, they don't need to be there. A, A proportion of those 
will actually go to uh, to the suburbs. And I think that that is a better model, less commuting, um, stronger bonding with family and with the community, with the street. I think that's, a, you know, from my point of view, I think it's a better way of life. So you've dropped this term, which I actually, I actually hadn't heard, the 20-minute city. That doesn't mean anything. I don't get out a lot. Um, so can you just tell me, give me a flavour for what that is? The 20-minute city is an idea that town planners have come up with. You know, for the last 20 years or so, it became famous when the Paris Strategic Plan was developed about 20 years ago, and they talked about the 20-minute city, I think largely based around the arrondissements. So we thought, well, a lot of planners around the world thought, oh, that's a great idea. Instead of having suburban workers go to the city jobs, how about localise work activities within the local region, reduce the number of commutes and so forth, so that you get everything you pretty well need within a 20-minute drive or cycle or walk. I think more likely our cities would be 30-minute cities rather than 20-minute cities. But it removes the 19th, 20th century logic of living on the outermost edges of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth and then commuting into the city centre and then back out again every working day for a 30-year life. It's working life. It's, it's illogical when you think about it. Maybe the coronavirus is triggering us to think big and bold and differently about how we navigate the city and operate our lives. What is the effect on our CBDs then? Well, you would have to say that, you know, some of the secondary space, you know, the the non-prime space, there'd be diminished demand for that. I have suggested in um, one of my more out there (laughs) columns that, uh, that maybe this could be made over for social housing or something like that. But you could also end up with this almost two tier work arrangement where working in the city has an even higher premium because that's where the you know the A team is really located or works or is connected. But you know, for a lot of people they'd say, well, you know, I'm never going to be CEO or CFO or whatever it is. I'm very happy with my job and um, you know, my job is really it's not the main thing in my life. My family, my friends, my lifestyle is and I'm very happy in the uh, in the suburbs. And I think that narrative really does connect with a lot of people in middle Australia. Bernard Salt, Managing Director of the Demographics Group. Stepping up next to the crystal ball is Alison Pennington. Alison is a Senior Economist at the Australia Institute Centre for Future Work. Her prediction for 2021 is a sobering one for job hunters. Uh, a good job is hard to find. I think that's, that's my strongest prediction. The, the scale of this labour market shock that we've been experiencing because of the pandemic and the, the reboot on the other side of it means that for a lot of people it's going to be hard to find any work and hard to find decent work. And that's because of the declining quality of the jobs that we've had in Australia. It didn't start with the pandemic, but it's something that the whole you know shock has really shone a light on just the, how cruddy our jobs have been getting in Australia uh, over the last few decades to make jobs generally more insecure and the, the general general experience of uh, you know traditional decent job where you you got some sick leave which is kind of handy in a health crisis and when you've got holidays so you can have time off for work-life balance these sorts of things normally traditionally attached to jobs are increasingly not and so I think if people are you know, interested in, in those things, they're going to be looking out into the labour market and not finding as many of those jobs around. 
So insecure work will be on the rise into next year as well? Without a doubt, yeah, because, I mean, any any great labour market crisis and economic crisis, the jobs that come back, when they do come back, they often come back crapper. And so most of the jobs, if actually 100% of the jobs lost in the crisis have been full-time jobs, uh, so, you know, over 200,000. And uh, a large proportion of the jobs coming back that are growing back are part-time jobs. So that's a huge problem if people want access to and need access to enough hours and, and high enough incomes to pay their bills, feed their kids and have a decent life. And what we'll see is that because there is not enough jobs being created in the economy, which is a problem of government as much as the private sector. And is there anything we can do? Is there any silver lining here? So for as long as we maintain our health restrictions and our health orders that have put restrictions on the movement of people, whether that's between states or international borders, that does kind of create an environment where we can more closely analyse the state of the Australian economy, different industries, different types of work that people do and say, hey, how do we, how could we make those jobs better? And I mean, one of the, the glaring issues for the Australian economy is how much we've relied on migration and migrant workers to undertake jobs that many of the Australian population generally haven't undertaken because they have a better understanding of like minimum wages and what the quality of a job should be. And migrant workers often get linked into these visa requirements that link them into poorer quality jobs, often not pay the minimum wage. So there's going to be, I think, increasingly as as we rebuild the Australian economy, there's going to be all these little spot fires that open up and, and people can see a way that we can work to make those jobs better and the experience of, of work better. Next, I've conjured up Pip Dexter. Pip leads Deloitte's human capital practice. Deloitte is one of Australia's largest consulting firms, employing around 10,000 people. I asked Pip how the transition back to the workplace using the hybrid model is going. It's going really well. I think it's fair to say that we are still learning, but we're embracing choosing different days that different teams come into the office. And That's working really well because we've started to think about the workplace as a social hub and we're introducing new activities that are based around connectivity. And so when we actually come to the physical workplace, it's got a different feel. It's all about connecting with different people. And your big prediction, Pip, involves adaptability. Now, we heard a little bit about adaptability in our October episode last year when we spoke to Penny Lacasso about her concept of intentional adaptability. What's your take? Well, I, I know Penny and I, I really support that idea. I think the notion of adaptability and when we've spoken in the past, we've said, you know, many years ago, IQ was the critical sort of intelligence, then it became emotional intelligence. And I think what we saw last year and definitely through this decade that we'll see is it's actually your AQ or your adaptability intelligence that will become critical. And how do we cultivate that from your perspective and the people that you uh, work with and, and consult with? Well, there's two ways that I think about this. One is what we call learning in the flow of work 
And the second is about creating cultures of learning in our organisations. So firstly, what is learning in the flow of work? This is focused on enabling people to learn a new set of capabilities such as problem solving, creativity, human-centred design, and doing that in a way that it's embedded in their day-to-day work rather than sitting off to the side. So prior to 2020, we would often see that people would step out of their day-to-day work and go and attend some learning. And what we're seeing is that learning now, people only have a short amount of time to do learning. So we actually embed it into shorter learning chunks and embed it into the day-to-day working. And what was the second one? So the second one was all around creating a learning culture. And so for me, this is about making it safe for people to learn and to fail and then learn quickly again in their teams. So when we think about learning culture, it's two-sided. One, it's about leaders making it safe for people to learn. And two, it's actually about individuals seeing that asking for help is a strength, not a weakness. One of the ways for leaders to help people make it feel safe to learn, one of the most practical things is for those leaders to share their own vulnerabilities or share stories of when they didn't know something and then how they learned to do it. By leaders just sharing those simple stories, it makes other people realise that it's safe in this organisation to not know everything, to actually try new things And then they will feel safer to learn and perhaps make mistakes themselves and then go on to learn. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Pip. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wishing you all the best for 2021. Thank you. Pip Dexter, partner leading Deloitte's human capital practice. Last to step up is Dr. Ben Hamer. He's the lead for future work at PwC Australia. So it's basically his job to know what the future holds for the organisation's 8,000 employees and their clients. Now, last year, PwC surveyed their employees to get a gauge on what had changed during 2020 and what they wanted for 2021. Possibly one of the most surprising things Ben found was that 51% of respondents said that the workplace culture had actually improved because of COVID. There are a couple of things that that we've started to uncover as we've looked into this because this was one of those really surprising ones. What we've seen is when we look at it from a behavioural science perspective, we've seen that it comes down to psychological contracts that people have with different environments. So when you think about the psychological contracts that you have with your home, it's generally around relaxation, comfort, security and fun. And when you think about what your contract is with the office, it's around efficiency, productivity, uh, it's work. And so by people being 
more so in that home environment, they associate more positive emotions with their experience of work, which therefore impacts their perception of culture. So that was kind of one take on it. The other one is then this whole notion that nothing brings people together like a crisis. And so what we've seen is, is that people really banded together at that, at that team level. So it's what we saw was that people started to actually feel a little bit more disconnected from the overall organisation, but a lot more connected to their immediate team. Now, Ben, we know how important coincidental interactions with our colleagues can be. So bumping into a colleague, grabbing a coffee or a quick chat in the corridor. How are you planning to reinvigorate the social side of things? The one I've loved when people talk about that, including myself, is they talk about it as the water cooler conversation. And I literally saw the first water cooler in an office for the first time this year in <laughs> how to, however many years. Um, how we're planning on doing it. It comes back to bringing it down to that team level. So, again, it's not about coming up with these organisational-wide ways in which we can try and um, drive creativity and innovation. It has to come with really providing that environment for the team, whether or not it be sort of we see team days, we see um, those virtual team events, um, whether or not you have a day a week where you all try and make it into the office. Um, I think those sorts of things are really important. Um, What we're seeing as well is... Um, because it's not just creativity and collaboration within your team. We want to see that happening across teams as well. So there are some organizations out there who are actually looking at this hub and spoke real estate footprint. So a smaller CBD office, but then having these pop-up type collaboration hubs that are in the suburbs, which mean that I just go to the office that's closest to me and I might not be co-located with my immediate team, but I'm surrounded by a whole other group of people in my organization. And again, that's an awesome way for sparking new and innovative ideas. So that's a, another way of, yeah, of, of doing it. So we know that to make remote working work, trust is central to all of that. Um, and particularly when it comes to empowering people to be creative and innovative, give them the capacity. If they're already working longer hours and in more meetings, they're not going to have the headspace to be able to think creatively. Um, and then also just making sure that they're trusted and that you embrace failure as a way of being able to do that as well, because people to be innovative need to fail. Now, you also asked people about their dream workplaces. What did they come up with? So, what we heard from people was um, it was that idea of they don't want to work full-time in the office and they don't want to work full-time at home. They want that in-between. They want that choice, control and flexibility to plan their workday and their work environment around the kind of work that they do. So, what we heard from people when we asked them was that they want to use a physical office space to connect with people, Um, but then they want to use their home or an alternative workspace for administrative work, for deep thinking, for more administrative type tasks. So, what that tells us is if people want to use the office more for collaboration, you need to redesign a space so that it's fit for purpose. You can't just have a whole floor full of desks if people want to come into the office to collaborate. Um, so it, it kind of positions you to rethink how you go about doing that. The other thing, if I think back to when I was talking about the social contract of home and how people have really benefited from um, their perception of work by being in that home environment. How do you take some of the fun spirit and energy that you get from a home environment and bring that into the into the new office? Um, maybe some really cool carpets and pot plants? I don't know. Well, what so else would I, it be? Um, I have a, a friend and what they're 
team did during lockdown um, was, uh, as you know, like how when you were in primary school, you'd have like a pet that you take home or something. They, okay, this isn't a pet because that would be a little bit weird, but they had a pot plant. So they had a team pot plant and then every week someone would have the pot plant at home. It would be in the background for their, their virtual meetings. Um, and then they would catch up with that person for a check-in coffee during the week and then hand the pot plant over to that person for the next week. And then it would just sort of rotate. Um, and that was a pretty cool way of maintaining connection and having these little fun rituals that, again, help to try and build that culture um, within teams, but particularly when you're not co-located together. I love that idea. Might try that. So in terms of our office, do you think it's going to be hard to tempt people back? What are you, what are you feeling the levels of interest are in going back to the office? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I think that's where it comes down to almost this state by state, territory by territory view, because I personally think that if you've given someone something, you can't just expect to then take it away without any consequence or, or retribution. So if, for example, you know, particularly those who had more of a sustained period of lockdown, I think Melbourne in particular, they really embedded new behaviours around working from home. And it's a real shift in mindset, expectation. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Melbourne and Sydney as well really has a, a more um, flexible working model in that sense. I mean, in Sydney, what we're already seeing is that people have been able to come back to work for some time and they just haven't. If we look at our office occupancy at PwC, we have less than 50% occupancy in our buildings, whereas Canberra and Perth are almost 100% and what they were pre-COVID. Because again, though they have a very different sort of experience with COVID. They never really embedded that work from home work week. And so it wasn't like they had much of a change or a shift. It was like, oh, worked from home for a bit. Now I'll just head back into the office. Whereas for me in Sydney, it's a real um, it's a real shift having to come back into the office now, having worked from home for so long. And then you've got sort of other factors that play on top of that, like we've had, you know, on average, people save about four and a half hours a week commuting by not coming into the office. And so, again, now that people have been given that time back, it's a sacrifice to come into the office to give up some of that four and a half hours. If you're in Perth and Canberra, where you have a relatively quicker commute into the office, that's not so bad. But if you're in the outer suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, it's much more of a compromise. So, I think we'll see more of a um, more people going into the office in some of those cities like your Perth, uh, Canberra, Brisbane to an extent, and then I think you'll see Sydney and Melbourne um, with more of a, a work from home sort of footprint. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you very much, Lisa. Just before we head off and put all of these predictions into practice, I have one final thought for you for 2021 from demographer Bernard Salt. Well, the whole coming of the coronavirus has caused us to rethink. And it, you often find, I think, in life, I mean, I can't base this on science, just on my <laughs> philosophy of life, that a major event really does prompt you to rethink where you are, what you're doing, where your finances are, where your relationships are, where your work is and you think well let's redesign this and you think well yes are we just going to rebuild what we had previously and i'm thinking well actually what we had previously wasn't all that good it was not efficient in terms of carbon emissions you know transporting people from the city edge to the city center is you know it's not really a smart thing to do 
we can actually rebuild our cities and our way of life and our way of working in a way that suits the 21st century and the values of who we are and who we want to be in the 2020s. It's now is the time to be bold and ambitious and big picture thinking in our planning for 2021. Let's just don't rebuild Australia and our way of life. Let's rebuild a better version of that. And I'm I'm sure that the environmental movement would be absolutely on board about this. They've been kind of hinting at this for the last six months or so. Now is the time to really reset the agenda, and I wholly agree. But I think it can go much beyond the environmental movement. I think it's the way we work, our mental health, our quality of life can all be improved by being bold now in 2021 going forward. I'm Lisa Leong, and I'm hoping, like me, you're just a little bit more ready to face the year right now. My producer this week was aspiring futurist Edwina Stott, and supervising producer was the ever-forward-thinking Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong. Keep working. Right, we can put away the crystal ball for now. Maybe till next year. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.